You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. All right, open up to Exodus chapter 33. So a couple weeks ago, we had our Overflow, really our, well, when our first ever, first this year, Overflow camp out. And um, it got rained out, so we didn't get to camp out. We camped in. We, we changed the name to the Glamp Out, Glamorous Camping, and it was great. Uh, we, we camped in the CLC. We still brought our tents and everything. We actually uh, uh, raided the entire church building, found all the fake plants, and moved them over to the CLC, and uh, kind of created this little forest-looking atmosphere of fake plants. It's pretty sweet. And then uh, we got a kiddie pool and uh, filled it with water and... Went and bought uh, 33 goldfish because that came out to exactly $5. And um, I, I was dumb enough to leave it to my intern, Matt, to do this. And so he, he gets all the fish from, I guess, Walmart. Was it Walmart? Was it Walmart? Petco. Oh, Petco. Okay. Uh, cool, Petco. And uh, they put them in this, this, this bucket about this size. Not really a bucket, like a container of some sort. And the, and the guy who sold them the fish was even like... Uh, 33 fish in there, they're not going to survive long. And he's like, oh, it's fine. We're just taking it, you know, just down the road. And, uh, and so he brings the 33 fish back in this little container and leaves them in the container in the, in the gym while we waited to, you know, like for an hour to fill up the pool and everything. And so we go over once the pool was full and uh, went to grab the fish and they're all floating upside down taking naps. Um, so the first 33 did, didn't make it. Uh, actually, no, that's false. There was one that, that survived. So we went ahead and dumped them all into the pool anyways. So there's like 32 fish that are floating there dead in the pool. And one that was struggling to survive, he ended up dying. So I sent, uh, uh, I can't remember, I think it was Josh Gardner. I don't know where Josh is. Uh, I sent Josh to go get the second round of fish. And so we got 33 more because $5. And uh, so we had them, and we, and we knew, okay, we got to get them out of the container quickly and into the water. And, and we're also told that because we just threw them straight into the water, not threw them, you know, lightly set them straight in the water, uh, the temperature change shocked their little goldfish bodies and they died, uh, which were like, they were already dead. Uh, that wasn't why they died. Uh, but they said, just leave them in their bags and let the bags float in the water for a little bit and then take them out of the bags. They'll adjust better. So we did that. And... Uh, Sure enough, they survived a little bit longer. Uh, we forgot to dechlorinate the water, though, so they all died again. So we killed 66 fish. <laughs> but anyways, I don't know why I got on that. So we're camping out at the CLC, and I didn't really know what to expect because it wasn't what we had planned for. Um, we ended up having a great time, and about, uh, I want to say about 11 o'clock that night, some students were like, hey, let's play Murder in the Dark. Um, has anybody here ever played Murder in the Dark before? Okay. So basically, the gist of murder in the dark is you get into a room, in this case, our gym, and uh, you make it as dark as you possibly can, which in this case is pretty stinking dark. Um, like, you, there were certain parts of the gym you couldn't even, like, see your hand in front of your face, so it was pretty pitch black in there. And then um, you, you dish out these cards, and whoever gets, like, the kings, they're the murderers, so we had, like, three murderers, and um, you turn out all the lights, and everybody goes, and the three murderers, they have to kill people. Uh, by, it's a great game to play at church, uh, by, they kill people by taking their hand and doing that across their, their neck. Um, you know, very soft, and, and they kill them. So when that happens to you, you have to fall to the ground uh, and just lay there until, which 
I don't know who created this game. This is kind of a dumb game when you think about it because it's pitch black and then you lay there dead until somebody either steps on you or accidentally kicks you and then they yell, they yell murder in the dark um, and then they turn on the lights and then you do an investigation to see who murdered the poor person that just got kicked by somebody else. And uh, so a lot of fun and uh, it was hilarious because we didn't realize this but um, the security cameras in the, in the gym actually have night vision. So... <laughs> You can't see anything when you're playing, but you watch it on the security camera TV, and you can see everything. Like, you can tell who is who. And so there were people getting out early in the game, because they weren't very good at Murder in the Dark, and they would go to the office and, and, and just sit there, and they realized, oh my gosh, we can watch the whole game in here. And so people would get out and start going to the office, then you'd have like 25 people in the office watching the last, you know, eight people in Murder of the Dark. And it was hilarious. It was literally like watching a horror movie. Because, I'm serious, because first of all, it's, it's night vision, so it, it's kind of that reversed uh, color, and so it's like just freaky looking in the first place. But then you would see people running around or walking around, you know, like this, but then you'd see the killer come on the screen and they'd be like this, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and, and there'd just be a few people left, and, and, and you would know, okay, you're like, you can't see each other, but you can, you can kind of hear and, I guess, maybe smell a little. And you, would, you could tell the killer realized somebody was in the corner, and the person in the corner is, like, freaked out because they don't, they're like, somebody's stalking me, but I don't know. So they're in the corner kind of doing this, and the killer's over there kind of, you know, they'd walk that way, he'd walk this way, and then they'd walk that way, and he'd walk this way. Get a little bit closer, and then just, boom, kill them, they drop it was really freaky. So we're all in the, we're all in the office watching, and, and I mean, it's almost like we're at a movie with popcorn, just like going, oh, oh, you know, he got, he, he got killed, you know. Um, but it's crazy, you know, a couple things I want to point out about the game. One is you can't see anything in the dark, which goes without saying, but uh, you can't see anything in the dark. And, and like I said, it's really funny watching people run around um, in the dark. In fact, this is not funny. Uh, somebody, I'm sure you're probably here tonight. I don't know who this was. I couldn't see anything in the dark, obviously, and at one point, I was not the killer, and somebody walks up to me very awkwardly and just does this. <laughs> and I was like, who are you? you know, and they just, they just kind of walked off real quick, you know? <laughs> so whoever that was, I haven't forgotten. But uh, yeah, you can't see anything in the dark, and because you can't see anything in the dark, um, you can get away with a lot in the dark. And uh, I was told this, I, I, I wasn't there for this part, but I was told that uh, early on in the game, before the general population of people playing knew that the security cameras could see in the dark, uh, <clears throat> I was told that there was one guy, I don't know who, I can't remember who it was, but one guy who was, as soon as the lights would go out, he'd take a shirt off and just start running around like this. <laughs> and then, uh, I don't know if that's true, that's what I was told. Uh, and then somebody would say, murder in the dark, and he'd hustle and put a shirt back on and <laughs> just be standing there, you know, when the lights came on. Um, but you can get away with anything in the dark. And it was really funny because one, one of our life group leaders was playing. And uh, I won't put him on blast because I don't want to embarrass Chris Sale. Uh, but he was, he was the murderer. And there were only a few people left. And uh, one, of, one of our girls was still in the game, not a murderer. And it was so funny because, so we're watching the screen. I was out at this point. We're watching the screen. And uh, I can't remember which girl it was, but, but whoever she was, she's standing in the corner and she's just like this. You know, you can tell she's terrified. And then all of a sudden, off screen, you see Chris walk on like this, you know. And, uh, and so he starts to kind of do that whole stalk her down thing. And he gets up to her and, and he kind of like grabs her and he does the whole, you know, slit her throat and kills her. Uh, not kills her, but, you know. 
And, uh, but she does this instead of like, you're not supposed to do this, but she does this and, and doesn't go down. So Chris is like trying to hack her, you know, and she's still struggling and she trips and falls. And so Chris has got her down on the ground and he's doing this and no joke. She gets, you can get away with anything in the dark. Nobody can like hold her to it, whoever it was. So she gets up and runs off. Well, Chris at this point knew that we were all watching on the camera. He knew where the camera was. So he turns after she runs off and looks at the camera and just goes like this to everybody who was watching. Um, at one point, I was the killer, and nobody knew I was the killer except Matt because we, uh, we rigged it to let me be the killer because I hadn't been yet and I wanted to be. Um, so uh, I was the killer, and, you know, you can get away, with any, get away with anything in the dark. One of the things I didn't like about this group we were playing with is whoever the killers were, they would wait for like 10 minutes before killing anybody. So we're all walking around in the dark waiting, you know, trying to kick around, find somebody dead, you know. And, uh, but nobody was dead because the killers were just standing back in the corners and waiting for somebody to walk by and they'd just walk, step out and kill them and then, you know, disappear into the dark. But when I was the murderer, as soon as the lights went out, I'm just like doing this, ta, 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 killing everybody that's close. And, um, but then they, you know, discover like my five bodies and, uh, <clears throat> and then they would do the investigation and, and, and there would always be somebody who would point at me and be like, I think it was him. And uh, so I'd have to go into the middle, and they'd investigate me. But as, as soon as somebody said, I think it was him, I'd be like, well, I think it was you. Get in here with me. And, uh, and so it's funny because, you know, I could get away with that because, one, I'm the pastor. Of course, they're going to believe me over their testimony. Um, so I'm like, I'm killing people when the lights are out. I'm killing people when the lights are up. It was awesome. But you can get away with uh, a lot when, uh, when it's dark. And I, I share that. It's a great story. I'm so glad all that happened. Um, but listen to me, uh, this, this is our country right now. Darkness has settled on our country. And, and, and two things you need to know. One, you can't see in the dark. And our country cannot see the fact that it is headed straight for the ledge of a cliff. Our country cannot see the fact that it is headed straight for destruction, straight for death. Our leaders are in the dark. Our, our people are in the dark. It's the blind leading the blind. You can't see when you're in the dark. In our country, darkness has settled on our country. The second thing you need to know about the dark is you can get away with a lot in the dark. Riots, discrimination. Um, even, even right now, I don't know if you realize this, but today and going on from today, the Supreme Court is meeting to um, decide whether or not they're going to redefine the institution of marriage. Um, the institution of marriage that has been in place since the beginning of time, put in place by God himself, and now... Um, Supreme Court justices who are in the dark are, are going to be, um, and when I say Supreme Court justices, like finite human beings who've only been alive for 60, maybe 70 years, created by God, are, are now going to step up and potentially completely redefine one of the institutions that God put in place. You can't see in the dark, and you can get away with a lot in the dark. Um, today, I got a notification on my phone, and if, if you um, if, if you're on social media, you may have seen this because I posted it on Twitter and Instagram, but I got a no notification on my phone from CNN.com, and it said this, President Obama, and it was quoting him, it said, those responsible, President Obama said this, those responsible for Baltimore violence should be treated as criminals. And then it goes on to say, U.S. needs soul-searching. And I posted a picture of this online, and, and I want to read you what I posted with it, and I'm, I'm reading this not because I'm proud of what I said, I'm, I'm reading it because when I saw this, for whatever reason, the Lord just immediately convicted my heart of, of what I'm about to read to you. And, and so it said, President Obama said, those responsible for Baltimore violence should be treated as criminals. U.S. needs soul-searching. So I, I, I posted this. I just got this notification on my phone. 
and my response to this is, yes, President Obama, we do need to do some soul searching. The, the problem with that statement, though, is the fact that you, our government, and the people of this country continue to push the only one who can truly shed light on the darkness, hovering over our souls further and further away. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the further that we push Jesus away, the darker this country is going to get. Mr. President, leaders of our government and people of this nation, our only hope is Jesus Christ. The more we push him out, the more riots we'll see. It's impossible to find your way through, pitch, through the pitch dark. Unfortunately, that's exactly what you, Mr. President, leaders of our government and people of this nation have asked for since you continually push to outlaw Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Now, in situations like this, it is the habit of the church and it is the habit of Christians to stand back and rant. In situations like this, it's the habit of us, many of us in this room, to stand back and and in anger, post things on Facebook or stand back and point fingers or, or to stand back and preach frustration-fueled messages and, and so on. But here's what I want to propose tonight. I want to propose to you that the reason our country is in such a dark place that it is is because we Christians are in a dark place. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 says, Jesus says, he says, you, talking to the church, this is plural, you, we studied this last semester, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen to me. He says, you are the light of the world, but here's my conviction. Right now, we are not the light of the world. Right now, we're not even the light of our country. In, 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 in some cases, that might be because of what Jesus says here. We're hiding under our basket, like he says. In fear, you know, we're, we're still hiding in this closet, not living openly in our faith in Christ because we're afraid of maybe losing friendships that we've, that we've had for so long and they're not believers. They don't agree with this new lifestyle that you're pursuing. Maybe we're, we're hiding under a basket because we're afraid of being mocked or being called haters or being called whatever. I mean, there's all these reasons we might be hiding under a basket in fear but I, don't, I, I really think the problem goes deeper than that. Like us not being the light of the world, I think it's the root of a much deeper problem. We aren't the light of the world because we too, just like everyone else, are pushing Jesus further and further away. And so tonight, I want you to see how insanely crazy it is for any of us to push Jesus away and to give up our right to meet with God. And so I want to start by looking at Exodus 33. We skipped over this last week. I don't know if you realize that. But Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7, um, I'm going to read it and kind of explain it as I go. But it says this. Now Moses, he used to take the tent and, and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent... All the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. So picture this. Like this is an incredible picture, an incredible image. Like imagine flying over in a helicopter back then, seeing all of these. We know there are at least a million Israelites. So imagine seeing millions of people 
find out that Moses is headed outside of the camp. And I don't know how far this tent of meeting was outside the camp. You know, I don't know if it was like quarter mile, half a mile, two miles, whatever. But it was off outside of the camp. And so Moses is getting up to go meet God at this tent. And and it says the people, when they heard that Moses was going to meet God, they would come out of their tents and watch Moses walk to the tent. And and it makes sense after we read what, what what, what it says next. But just picture like millions of people coming out of their tent. Like, like one person sees Moses get up and he knows he's heading to the tent. So he yells at his buddies across from him and they start yelling at everybody else saying, dude, Moses is going to the tent. And everybody's like, dude, Moses is going to the tent. Runner goes through camp. Moses is going, through the, going to the tent. And everybody starts coming out because they want to watch. Um, I don't know what my, why my mind thinks of this, but it makes me think of prairie dogs. I don't know if you've seen prairie dogs. Um, and I, I used to be a pastor in Lubbock and uh, there's this place called Prairie Dog Town. It's the dumbest thing ever. Um, it's right next to the, the 18th tee box at one of the golf courses, and, um, which is great because you tee off one, you know, actually aiming for the 18th hole, and then you turn and tee off towards the prairie dog town, see if you could hit some prairie dogs. But they'd always, when they would hear you coming up to the tee box, um, all the prairie dogs, like thousands of prairie dogs, this is a big area, they'd all come up out of their holes and just stand there. You know, and, and just watch, like they wouldn't move. And I just picture that's almost what's happening here. They know Moses is going to the tent, so everybody comes up out of the hole. They come up out of the tent, and they're standing there watching, and this tent is off in the distance, and there's other tents between them and the tent where Moses was going, so I'm sure at some point they're kind of getting up on their tiptoes like this and kind of looking around the tents. They're straining just to see where Moses is going. So verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of, <clears throat> the pillar of cloud, which we know from past study that this is representing God's presence, it would hover over the people a cloud during the day, fire at night. It says the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. So, so here's again what I'm picturing. These people come out of their tent. Probably if nothing else, they just want to watch the cloud move. I mean, how incredible would that be? Like they know the cloud. That's, that's God's presence. Moses is going to the tent of meeting. He's going to meet with God. And as he goes, the cloud moves with him. That had to have been absolutely crazy to see. And so they're just, you know, watching Moses, looking up at the cloud, watching Moses, looking up at the cloud. The closer he gets to the tent, the closer the cloud gets to the tent. Eventually it starts to descend down on the tent. And look at what it says. It says, so when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud Standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. A more accurate translation there is mouth to mouth. Like they are exchanging words. Moses is exchanging words with God. God is speaking back, and it says, as a man speaks to his friend. I just want you to imagine what they had to have been thinking. Like all these people are watching Moses go to meet with God. They see it all go down. And Moses is in there. The cloud is covering the tent. Imagine what they're thinking. Imagine what they're feeling. Like imagine, imagine how badly they wish that they had been the ones in the tent meeting with God. Like they had to have been in total awe by what they were seeing, totally captivated by what they're seeing, totally um totally just blown away, totally blown away by the fact that God was meeting with Moses. And you know, you know they had to have wished they could have been in that tent too. But they couldn't. 
In fact, it says the tent was far off from the camp. The best that they could do is watch from a distance, worship from afar. Okay, so now look at chapter 34. So in between 33 and 34, Moses, he intercedes on, on behalf of Israel because um, they had just sinned by building the golden calf, and he's convincing God, he's interceding, asking God, begging God um, to stay with Israel and continue to travel with them. So uh, God actually invites him back up on Mount Sinai now. So he goes back up on Mount Sinai, and this is where God kind of rehashes out the covenant with Moses. He gives them a new, fresh set of tablets because he broke the first two, and, uh, and then he comes back down. And, and this is where we pick up in verse 29 of chapter 34. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in or on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. I mean, look at verse 29. It says, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone. Like a more probably straight up translation of that would be to say his face shot forth beams of light. Like you know, uh, you know that glow that a girl gets when Bay sends her flowers? Oh my gosh, flowers. You've got that James Dean daydream. Anyways, I don't know where that came from. I may or may not every once in a while have Taylor Swift on. I guess I know that song. So, um, but that's not what this was at all. Like this wasn't this, oh my gosh, she's so happy he just hung out with God. No, this was like literal radiating glow from his face. Like it probably looked like he'd just been playing with uranium or something. There was glow coming off of his face after meeting with God. Now there's a couple things I want to look at kind of as a side note before moving on from this. First of all, when you meet with Jesus, being the light of the world, it just happens. I mean, verse 29, again, it says, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, or it was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses didn't have to say anything about meeting with God. The people knew that he had been with the Lord. They could see it. They saw him. And this isn't the only place this happens in Scripture. Um, it happens in Acts 4.13. We see now when they saw, this is the Sanhedrin, the judges, the leaders, of, the leaders of the people in Jerusalem. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, who just stood up and, and essentially preached to these people, saying, y'all are the ones who crucified Jesus. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were un, uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Like, when you meet with Jesus, this just happens, when we push Jesus further away, it is impossible for us to be the light of the world because it is in meeting with Jesus that we become the light of the world. 
The second thing I want you to see kind of as a side note here is Moses, he didn't even know that his, know that his face was shining. I mean, you go back, verse 29, it says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face was shining. And this is way more significant than I think we realize. Numbers 12, 3 says, now the man Moses was very meek or very humble, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And, and here's why this is important. I feel like when we have an encounter with God, the first thing we want to do is tweet about it or, or post about it. Sometimes I think, in fact, I would say a lot of the time, I think we seek encounters with God just so we can post about it. And that's crazy. I mean, it's really crazy when you think about it. We seek God so often, not because we want God, but because we want the recognition that comes from being somebody who's seeking after God. There's no humility in that. There's no meekness in that. There's no light of the world in that. Because honestly, if that's why you're seeking God, you're probably not really seeking God. Therefore, you're not encountering God. Therefore, you're not shining. Therefore, you're not being the light of the world as a result of meeting with God. Moses, he came off the mountain. He didn't know his face was shining. And I think that's often, it's not always how it is, but that's often how it is. After we have encountered God, we don't even realize it, but people can tell. But all that being said, I mean, you see the people's response. As he comes down off the mountain, his face was shooting forth beams of light. And the people's response was they were afraid. They were freaked out. They're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? I mean, imagine what they had been thinking. Imagine what they had to been feeling when they see this. Imagine, imagine what they were thinking when they see the radiation of Moses' face. Imagine how badly they wish they could have been the ones to go up on the mountain. I mean, once again, they had to have been totally amazed, totally captivated by what God had done, totally in awe of the fact that, that God and Moses were meeting together, like actually meeting together, and they had to have wished that they could have been the ones to have that meeting. But they couldn't. And we know that. They, in fact, they weren't even allowed to set foot on the mountain. We know that from Exodus 19. The first time he goes up on the mountain, God says, don't let anybody come close to this mountain. We see it again in Exodus uh, 34, verse 3. The same thing. God says, when I come down on this mountain, you better not let anybody come close to this thing or they're going to die. I mean, imagine what they had been thinking. And then you look at chapters 35 through 39. And, and in these chapters, they're almost an exact repeat of chapters 21 to 30 or I'm sorry, 25 to 31. But in, instead of God being the one, to, instead of God giving instructions to Moses on, on what to build for this tabernacle that he's about to build, and in, instead of him giving instructions on how to build this stuff for the tabernacle, now Moses in these 35 through 39 chapters, he is now instructing the people on what to build and how to build the tabernacle. And then he's leading them to actually construct it, to actually build it. Um, so Exodus 35, it begins by Moses, and I, and I didn't notice this till today, but he starts off by, by hashing out the Sabbath regulations that God had given to them. And I always thought, that's kind of weird that that goes right there, but then it just hit me. It's obvious why he does this. This was one of the commands of God, and, and they're about to go into the season of working really hard, and so he reminds them of the Sabbath day. Look, six days of work, seventh day, we got to rest. And then, and then the second section, verse 4 and on through chapter 35 he then gathers the people together and he says, all right, here's what we're going to need in order to build this. And so he leads the people to contribute <clears throat> to the building of the tabernacle based on how God is leading them in their hearts to do so. And so the people start bringing their gold, their silver, their bronze, other, 
uh, costly possessions that they had, they start bringing them to Moses to be used for the building of the tabernacle. And not only did they bring stuff to build it with, but they actually brought themselves to do the building. Like it says in there, people who had the skills to, to make this stuff exactly like God had commanded, they brought their talents and used them to build this tabernacle. You look at verse uh, 20 and 21 of, of chapter 35, it says, Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. So Moses tells them, here's what we're about to do. Now go get stuff that we can use for the temple, for the tabernacle. In verse 21 it says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So then chapters 36 to 39, if you, if you read that, which I encourage you to, it's, it's interesting. It, it shows them building this stuff, making all of this stuff for the tabernacle that God had laid out in chapters 25 to 31. And so flip to chapter 40. I'm, I'm going to read, we're going to actually read all of chapter 40. And I, wanna, I want you to see how this tabernacle looked and worked. Say, what is your turn in there? I'm going to get a little drink. Chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Okay, I want you to see this, okay? Because I know as I just read that, y'all are like, uh, what? Um, only because I know I was too. So, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And so uh, he, he essentially says there's going to be this, there's going to be like this tent here. Boom. And uh, he says, you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. The ark of the testimony, that was the ark of the covenant. Um, Raiders of the lost ark, that's what he's talking about there. Ark of the covenant. So the ark of the covenant is going to go in here. What does he say after that? Let's put some little horns on, or cherubim on there. There you go. Angels. Those little lines, those are angels. <laughs> they were supposed to have gold angels on there, so there you go. So you shall put, the, put in it, verse 3, the ark of the testimony, and you, you shall screen the ark with the veil. So then there's this, there's this veil right here, like this curtain. And you shall bring in the table... And arrange it. Now, what he's talking about here is the table, the bread of the presence, which, again, go back to chapters 25 to 31, and you'll see more detail there. And on this table, there would be um, 12, basically 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, they always had that bread in there before the Lord. So, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. So then there's like this lamp here, and it had multiple things coming off of it. There you go. There's a lamp. And in verse 5, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. So then right here in front of the veil, there's this ark of incense. And so there would be incense burning off of that thing all the time, a sweet aroma before the Lord. So you should put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. So now he's talking about 
there's going to be this screen here, and that's, that's essentially the door of going into the tabernacle. And, and sometimes this is called the tabernacle, sometimes something else, which I'll show you is called the tabernacle. This essentially is the tent of meeting, and this room right here was, uh, we'll call it the, well, it's called in Scripture, the holy place. Ran out of room. And uh, right here is the holiest place. Or you might uh, hear it more often, the, the, holy, uh, the holy of holies. And that'll make sense in a second if it doesn't already. So where are we at? Verse 6, you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So now he's saying you're going to build this altar and, and here's the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You're going to stick this altar out here. And it's a pretty big altar. Had horns coming off the side. Don't confuse those with cherubim. I know they look the same. <laughs> you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Verse 7, and place the basin, which it was this bronze like bowl, big bowl, big basin, between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. So, so now he's saying there should be this basin right here, and, and there's water in that. And he'll explain that briefly in a second. All of this he goes into more detail in Leviticus, and as well as a little bit in Numbers and Deuteronomy, if you want to do some more studying. And place the basin between the tent of the meeting, a tent of meeting and the altar. So that's where we put it and, and put water in. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. So now he's saying you need to build this, this, uh, this court around the tent of meeting. And then on one end, you need to build a screen or an entrance in front of where they would see the altar of burnt offering. So verse 9, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them. And as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And, they, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So basically now he's saying you need to purify all of this. Consecrate it. That's what that means. And there was special ways that they would do that. And then Aaron and his family, they were going to be the priests. They were going to be the ones who carried out the operations of the tabernacle. And, and so they had to be purified. They had to be consecrated. Verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It was built. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark. That's the, that's the two tablets that Moses had been given. They're now inside the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. He took the testimony, put it into the Ark, and put the poles on the Ark, and set the mercy seat above the Ark. Verse 21, and he brought the Ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the Ark of the Testimony. So now it's in there, screened off. As the Lord had commanded Moses, verse 22, he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle. So here's the north side. Here's the table, the bread of presence. Outside of the veil, 
and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice every time it says, as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's important. You go back to Exodus 25, 8, and it says, God says to Moses, do this exactly as I've commanded you to do it. And that's very important. Verse 24, he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, up there, and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle uh, of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set out the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected or he built the court around the tabernacle, that's the wall around it, and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. I want you to, I want you to see this now, okay? So So kind of re-explaining everything, you got this outer court. You got outside the tabernacle, then you have this outer court, and then you have this altar for burnt offerings, uh, burnt sacrifices, then you have this washing basin where the priests would have to purify themselves after making the proper offerings before they entered into the holy place. They had to consecrate themselves, purify themselves. Then the closer they moved to the holiest place, they would do these other things in here with the bread of the presence, the altar of incense, and this golden lampstand. And then you had this veil separating everything else from the holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which we'll see in a second. This is where God would dwell among his people. Now, this veil is interesting. Uh, scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of details about the veil. I think Exodus 26, 31 to 35-ish is where it talks about the veil. Um, some other ancient, early ancient documents uh, talk about the veil, and it could just be Jewish tradition, or this could be actually what the veil was, um, but it talks about it in multiple places, so I lean towards this being actually what the veil was like. But there's other ancient writings that talk about the veil being uh, a hand breadth wide. So this isn't a curtain like one of these flimsy little things. A hand breadth wide, which for them was about four inches, so a little bit smaller than my hand, but that's about how wide this veil was. That's how thick the curtain was. And there was also uh, different places where it talks about it would take 300 of the priests when they would move the tabernacle just to handle the veil. That's how massively heavy and huge it was. And then there's also places where it talks about you could tie a horse to this end and a horse to that end and, and, and tell them to go opposite directions and they would not be able to tear the veil in half. That's how strong the veil was. And so in the tabernacle, which is essentially the mobile version of the temple before they got settled in their permanent place, in the tabernacle, all kinds of sacrifices for sins and offerings were made to God. And this happened in all these different ways. And there's, you know, Leviticus, like I said, explains all of that. But the, the specific thing you need to see is there was one day a year, which is explained in Leviticus 16, called the Day of Atonement. One day a year where one man, called the high priest, could actually go on the other side of this veil. All other days of the year and all other people on the planet were not allowed on the other side of this veil. But on that one day, after he had done all of the things that God commanded him to do as he worked his way closer, which I think this is interesting, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but everything out here is bronze. As it gets closer, it turns into gold. It doesn't turn into gold, but it, it's built out of gold. The closer it gets to the holiest of holies, the closer it gets to where God dwelled, the more precious of a metal it was. 
One day a year, though, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could come behind the veil and he would make uh, a sacrifice and make an atonement for all the people's sins through a sacrifice. This was the one day a year that anyone could go behind the veil into the presence of God. Now look at verse 33. Then the cloud, which is God's presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, just picture this happening. They finished building this exactly like God commanded. And as soon as they were done and they cleared the place after purifying it, they they all get out of there. The cloud comes and settles in on the tabernacle, in on the holiest of holies. Verse 33, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, in other words, if it didn't move, then they didn't set out till the day that it did move. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Just imagine what they're thinking as all of this is happening. Imagine what they're thinking every morning when they got up and they see this cloud filling, hovering over the tabernacle. Imagine what they're thinking at night when they come out of their tent for a bathroom break and they see the pillar of fire hovering right on top of the tabernacle. Imagine what they're feeling. I mean, imagine what, what, what they, what, imagine how, imagine what it was like to even, even feel the presence of God cover the tent of meeting. Imagine how badly they wish they could have been inside there in the presence of God. I mean, again, they had to have been amazed. They had to have been completely captivated by what God was showing them They had to have been completely in awe of the fact that that one time a year, that one man named the high priest could actually go behind that veil and be in the actual presence of this unimaginably huge, powerful, unapproachably holy God that we've been studying about. I mean, they had to have wished that they could just get a moment with God, but they couldn't. Not even Moses, it says, verse 35, not even Moses could enter the tent of meeting. Not even him, not even he could go in there to the holiest of holies. I mean, except for that one day a year when only the high priest could go past the veil into the presence of God, nobody was allowed to go behind the veil. And think about that. Like, they could come up to the edge here, and some were allowed to actually come into the inner courts, and there were a few priests that were allowed to come into the holy place. I mean, think about how close they were. I mean, this wasn't a huge distance here. As close as they got to the presence of God, they were still immeasurably far. Anyone who, anyone who went past the veil, beyond the veil, who wasn't supposed to, died. In fact, anyone who got too close to the veil, who wasn't supposed to be that close, died. The veil, it existed because of their sin. It essentially protected the people from the presence of God because unapproachable holiness can't be in the presence of sin and the sinner dies every time. The veil existed because of our sin. And so imagine how badly they wish they could have been inside with God. Imagine how badly they, could have, they wish they could have met with God just one time. 
Imagine how badly they could have, or they wish they could have set foot into the presence of this huge, powerful, holy God. And again, it didn't matter how badly they wanted to, they were not allowed to. And this is why what happened while Jesus was on the cross is such a huge deal. Flip in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Starting in verse 33. It says this, and and when the sixth hour had come, Jesus, he's on the cross. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, they were totally confused. They had no idea what was going on. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and, and, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He died. And look at what happens immediately as he dies. He breathed his last. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The moment that Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn. That veil no longer exists. Because of Jesus' death, by Jesus' death, he allowed all of us unhindered access to our unimaginably huge and powerful and unapproachably, unapproachably holy God. We can go beyond the veil. In fact, there is no veil to go beyond anymore. Jesus tore it. He removed it. He destroyed it. He eliminated the need for the veil. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 1 Corinthians 6, 19, where Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? You are God's tabernacle, he says, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Chapter 6, verse 19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple or tabernacle of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? I mean, suddenly these two verses become two of the most remarkable statements in all the Bible. Like, we can meet with God. We don't have to stand at a distance and watch somebody else go meet with God. We don't have to have someone else do it on our behalf, go into there on our behalf. We don't have to wait for that one day a year to go into the presence of God. We can do it any day. We can do it every day. We can do it all day. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can go beyond the veil. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I, we can meet with God. And so as we close this series and end this semester, there's two things that I want you to see. And really, I think this is what everything in Exodus points to. In fact, if you look at Exodus 40, verse 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the fulfillment of a promise back in uh, Exodus 29 where God says, They're going to be my people and I'm going to dwell among them. Like this is the culminating moment of Exodus. Then God dwells among the people. 
But I think this is the, the, the two big points that we've got to see to wrap up this whole series. And the first is this. Jesus is your access point to God. Jesus is your access point to God. There's literally no other way. I mean, remember, it doesn't matter what you think about God. It matters who God actually is. It doesn't matter who you think God is. It matters who God actually is. And God, as we have seen, is unapproachably holy. You can't come even close unless you come through Jesus. And doesn't this shed a whole new light on John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is your access point to God. Because of what he did on the cross, you can go beyond the veil into God's presence. Because of what he did on the cross, you can meet with God. The second thing you need to see is this. Stop standing outside and go in. Uh, Yesterday, I went running at about 6 o'clock. I want to say it was about 6 o'clock. And as soon as I left my apartment, it didn't take a scientist to know that it was about to rain. And so I left in the first two miles, no rain. Two miles out from my apartment, though, it was like planet Earth decided to take a bath. And, uh, man, it just started. I mean, were any of you outside yesterday around 6 o'clock? It was dumping rain. It was crazy. And so I'm running in the rain. I'm, you know, I'm two miles away from my apartment. I really have no choice. I thought about pulling my phone out and calling somebody. Hey, can you come pick me up? Uh, but I, I, I kept, I turned around and started running back to my, my place. And it's literally, it's dumping rain. And at first, you know, I'm, I'm trying to dodge puddles and stuff, but eventually got to a point where, I mean, the ground's so saturated right now. If it rains just a little bit, everything floods. And so I'm, I'm no longer dodging puddles. I'm just splashing through everything because it's done, it's, I'm going to get injured if I try to dodge the puddles. Uh, but I'm running and, and I got so drenched. Actually, my, my shorts got so waterlogged that my drawstring wouldn't hold them up anymore. So the last mile I'm having to run uh, like this, true story. But think about this. Why would anybody, and I thought about this after I went in, I was like, well, that was really kind of dumb. But, but why would anybody choose to be out in the cold rain when they have access to cozy, warm, dry shelter? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, does that make sense? No. One punk in the middle said yes. No, it doesn't make sense. Listen, in the same way, why would anybody stand out here when you have been given access to the holiest of holy places where God dwells, where you can meet with God? It doesn't make sense. Yet let me tell you something. That's what so many Christians are doing. I mean, Exodus 33 through 40, the people could only imagine what it would be like to set foot in God's presence. But they had to keep a distance. They weren't allowed to go near. But for us, the veil has been torn. Jesus has eliminated the barrier that stands between us and God. Yet so many of us are still standing on the outside. 
So many of us even, and this one drives me nuts, so many of us are standing on the outside and trying to show off our knowledge and be like, yeah, you know, actually uh, Jesus tore the veil when he died. And uh, if you read Mark 15, it actually says he tore it from top to bottom. Have you ever noticed that? It proves that man didn't tear the veil. God tore it from top to bottom. <laughs> man, freaking stop talking and go in. We have access to God, yet so many of us, we're pushing him further and further away for the sake of political correctness or for the sake of, of needing more time for entertainment or Netflix or friends or whatever it is. For so many reasons, we're pushing him further away. And as a result, when our president gives a speech and says, we need to do some soul searching, we can't just point to the president and our government and say, you're choosing to live in the dark because you're choosing to push Jesus further and further away. We have to point to ourselves and say the same thing. Andrew Murray, pastor in the 1800s in South Africa, he, he said this in his book, Abide in Christ. He said, who would, after seeking the king's palace, be content to stand in the door when he is invited in to dwell in the king's presence and share with him in all the glory of his royal life? Who in their right mind, after seeking out God, would be content with standing at the entrance of his palace when he's been invited all the way in for a meal. Nobody would do that. Yet that's what we're doing day in and day out, day in and day out. We're choosing so many other things instead of God himself. Instead of choosing to meet with God. Instead of getting on our knees and having those face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth conversations with God in the tent Instead of opening up his word and listening God, to God speak directly to us, we're choosing other things. We're choosing to stand at the entrance. Like, we're satisfied with just a little glimpse. We're somehow satisfied with just a little taste, which, which honestly, for me, that makes me question whether or not we've really even seen a glimpse or tasted a little bit at all. Because I don't think you can taste just a little bit and not go all the way in. You know, a lot can happen in, in the three months between now and the, la- and the next overflow in the fall. And, and, and you look at what's happening in the world right now, and who knows what the state of our country will be when we kick this thing back off in the fall. Who knows what the state of our world will be when we start this back in the fall. But I can tell you this for sure. The veil will still be torn. And so my challenge to you, specifically the believers in the room, is to stop standing outside and go in. This summer, you have the opportunity. Tonight, you have the opportunity. Tomorrow, you have the opportunity to stop chilling out here and to go in and meet with God because you now, through Jesus, have permission to go beyond the veil. And those of you who maybe don't yet know Jesus, haven't yet put your faith in Christ, you need to understand that you are not allowed to go beyond the veil. Because Jesus is your access point. And until you accept what he's given to you, which is permission to go beyond the veil, you you don't have permission to go beyond the veil. So I pray, I pray, I've been praying coming into this tonight, I've been praying this all semester, that you would realize that and and choose to respond to Jesus' gift of permission to go beyond the veil. Let me pray for us.
Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.